Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And in just a few seconds, you're going to hear something new from us. It's episode one of our six-part series, Meet the Customer. Peabody award-winning journalist Adam Davidson, co-creator of Planet Money, and Peabody and Emmy award-winning journalist Jane Marie take you on a journey through the past and the present, and yes, the future of the intense, intimate relationships between businesses and their customers. So now, let's meet the customer. All right, Asher. Yes? What are you going to do for the very first time in your life? Um, I'm going to be making a pizza. It's pizza night at the Davidson household. Okay, so grab a little bit of flour and... Can, I can I can do it, I can do it. That's my son Asher, he's 10. You can do a little more than that. And I am the wise old guide. Well, don't squeeze, see, we're flattening. I'm acting like an expert. When was the first time I made a pizza? Like four days ago. <laughs> Is that, and now I'm talking like I'm the expert pizza maker. Wait, sir, I have a question. Yeah. Where is this going? Earlier that morning, I got a great shipment. I got the Pizzaiolo, an at-home pizza oven made by Breville. Sure, I could use my regular oven, but that, like most regular ovens, only gets up to about 500 degrees. Great pizza needs at least 750 degrees of heat. Now, I think I should be the one to put it in the very hot oven. Okay, I will be documenting this. And you cleanly just got that right off. Very gourmet pizza, whatever that means. If you've ever made pizza, you know the hardest thing is doing that flick that gets the whole pie right in the oven without bending it over and turning it into a calzone. With the awesome Breville oven, the pizza was ready in about 90 seconds. And the reviews were good. That is delicious. Is it really? Yeah, that's really good. I'm getting better at having the thin crust, the consistent thin crust, the puffy ends. With all due respect, sir, aka my father, um, I feel like tomorrow can we eat something that's not pizza? What do you think of when you hear the word innovation? When you hear that word innovation, doesn't your mind go to all these brand new technologies? But no, I'm here to tell you that innovation, the most common and most impactful forms of innovation, are not brand new, super cool technologies. They're everyday things, things that people want that they can't quite have. They are pizza at-home pizza baking. Look, I want some cool futuristic flying car made out of space-age metals as much as the next person. But right now, the thing I want is to make a great pizza. And my number one customer isn't quite convinced yet. I mean, you didn't burn the pizza, but... But with, like, the store, I know that it's, like, kind of more high quality because it's... Hey, don't look at me like that. I think... Someone who's been making pizza work for half their life has better quality than your pizza. I'm not saying that the pizza isn't bad. I'm just saying that it's higher quality. 
We're talking about pizza making because it's a big new trend. It's part of the whole pandemic era baking renaissance. A ton of people, maybe you, were stuck at home for a long time and started to make things that they used to just buy. The trend actually started well before the pandemic. COVID just sped up something that was already happening. And for our purposes, at-home pizza making is a great case study of something called customer-centric innovation. So technology-centric innovation is the stuff that gets all the press, all the headlines. It's the entirely new technology that blows people's minds. But look around you. Right now, look around your house or your office or your neighborhood or your car. Most of what makes your life better was created because someone someone at some company, figured out that their customers had some need or some desire that wasn't being fully met. I'm a lurker. <laughs> I'm that weird person standing in the baking aisle listening to people as they pick up packages and put them back. Um, I try to, you know, hang out in, in, in the baking aisle and just see and listen to what people are saying about different products they're picking up. That is Sue Gray. She works for King Arthur Baking Company, and she has one of the best jobs in the world. It's her job to make sure that when you go to the baking section of the grocery store, there will be the things you want most. In practice, that means she bakes stuff and eats baked stuff all day long. Lots and lots and lots of baked goods. Well, I do have a hard time you know, convincing people that, oh my God, it was just awful today. I ate 20 different chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> if she's working on a new recipe for, say, gooey chocolate cake or some kind of cookie, she's making and eating dozens of varieties. She might work on one recipe for months and months. That's a lot of chocolate chip cookies. And she's been doing this for nearly 30 years. And she says, it's not awful to spend your life making and eating baked goods. I am so lucky. I know a lot of people would find it gets awful. I mean, there are days when like, I do go home and it's like, I just want like the saltiest, savoriest thing for dinner. But I never get tired of eating baked goods. I kind of wish I did a little bit, but, um, you know, you need a bite. You don't need to eat four bites. You know, it's good or it's not. I had no idea who Sue Gray was until recently, but I've been enjoying her work for a while. I've made King Arthur's chocolate chip cookie mix. It is ridiculously good. And their moist chocolate cake, that's unbelievable. It lasted a full week of deliciousness at our house. I was talking to Sue now because she was in charge of creating a special flour for people like me making pizza dough at home. Now, a quick guide to the chemistry and physics of flour and pizza. Awesome pizza is a bit of a miracle, especially if you're making it Neapolitan style, the super thin pizza with a crust that is somehow both crispy and chewy and airy. When you nail it, it is thrilling and impresses your friends and family. When you don't, well, it's still pizza. It's still pretty good. It's cheese and tomato sauce and bread, but it's not amazing. There is a huge world of at-home pizza-making aficionados like me. Check on Amazon. You'll see a ton of books on the topic. 
the elements of pizza, mastering pizza, the pizza Bible. Every celebrity chef has a video on YouTube showing you how to make the perfect pizza at home. But all those videos and all those books say the same thing. You need double zero flour. You need flour that is perfect for pizza. Double zero flour is a specialty item that is most common in Italy. It is ground incredibly fine. Each flour particle is one one hundredth the size of a regular flour particle. It's like comparing salt to baby powder. That tiny size of the flour particles allows the dough to be super thin, but also super strong because of the gluten, so you can stretch it out. Not that long ago, it was quite hard to find double O flour in the United States. There's one big Italian flour maker, Caputo, who shipped to the U.S., but it wasn't on most store shelves. So home pizza makers used what they could find, usually all-purpose flour or bread flour. And as a result, most home pizza makers were disappointed. There was something not quite right. Their pizza was coming out too bready, too spongy. It didn't have that crispy, chewy perfection. These are just some of the kind of the the data points behind where we were, um, what led us to launching our pizza flour. This is John Henry Sidelke. He's the VP of innovation at King Arthur Baking Company. He explained to me how customer-centric innovation works. King Arthur has an online baking store. It's a favorite among at-home bakers of all kinds. And the company pays super close attention to what people are buying on that online store and any changes. A few years ago, they started selling pizza ovens like the Breville Pizzaioli that I got and the Uni. These are amazing devices. You'll learn more about them later on this show that make it easy and not too expensive for a home chef to create great pizzas the consumer response on that item is, is pretty spectacular. People, people that do have them, love them. And, um, you know, when we saw those start to spike, when we saw, um, some of the other pizza, pizza accessories on our, on our, uh, direct channel start to spike, we saw, we, we've kind of started to read between the lines and say, Hmm, people are baking more pizza at home. And, and what that led us to was ultimately, um, doing a little bit more consumer research, reading about, um, what, what other trends are happening out there. This is how customer-centric innovation begins, paying close attention to what customers are up to. If there's a sudden spike in some kind of activity, that's worth studying. Using this process, they learned that a lot of people want gluten-free options, so they developed a lot of those. Gluten-free cupcakes and cookies and pancakes and cakes. They also developed a lot of low-carb mixes. That was a stretch for the company at first because they essentially are a flour company, which means they sell carbohydrates. They also saw all these people buying pizza ovens. Those cost hundreds of dollars or more. And King Arthur is not going to suddenly launch its own pizza oven. They're not an appliance company. They're a flour company. So John Henry wants to know, are people likely to buy flour that would help them make better pizza? And part of it is we have an amazing uh, what we call a consumer advisory panel. So these are about 10,000 um, mixture of King Arthur uh, purchasers and, and non-purchasers um, that we're able to tap into and do some uh, quick, pretty seamless uh, consumer research to get a read on, you know, their thoughts on on different baking trends and products and whatnot. Um, so, you know, what we saw was that a lot of them had made pizza at home, and a lot of them were using, you know, existing flours, and 
that really said that that lent us to believe that there would be an opportunity if we create a very specialized product that was designed um, for a home oven, um, not necessarily, it, it can be used in an uni oven or a high heat oven, but it's built for just regular home oven use. If we could create a flour that really allowed for home pizza baking for, you know, the average uh, consumer that doesn't have an uni, um, that we, we would really be onto something. It starts with a hunch, huh? Maybe people are buying pizza ovens. Maybe they'd want a special pizza flour. That hunch is then backed up by data. And then comes the research and development. That's Sue Gray and her team in a kitchen using different flowers, making pizzas and pizzas and pizzas and pizzas to figure out, is there really a difference? Is there a special flower we can sell that'll just up everyone's pizza game? Now, she told me King Arthur didn't always do customer-centric innovation. She remembers a head of innovation before John Henry who had come to her with huge demands. We really need you to come up with some $10 million ideas. And we didn't get anything done. We kept like, oh, we're going to do this. And we'd get to a certain point And it was like, I don't know. Do you think this, can we, like in two years, send that much? That's nuts. We'll never, you know, okay, let's not do it. And we ended up like really doing almost nothing. Uh, and like, Everybody, it kind of was like paralyzing, thinking it had to be this huge thing. This, to me, is the whole point of customer-centric innovation. If you sit in a room and try to think up the next $10 million product, you're not going to do anything. But if you pay attention to what your customers are saying and what they're doing, and you come up with some theories, and you test them out, and then you build on those ideas that seem to work the best... Well, then you're on a real path. And indeed, it took a year of research and development, but Sue Gray and her team came up with a double zero flower that has become one of King Arthur's fastest growing hits. It's also the flower I use to make the pizza for my family. King Arthur Baking Company has a formal system that guides its customer-centric innovation. It's called the Stage Gate Process. There's a good chance you might have heard of it, Stage Gate. It's very standard in corporate America. I called up Robert Cooper in Toronto, Canada. Well, um, I am affiliated at the moment with Penn State University and father of the stage gate process, if you want to use that, yeah. And you could say that legally because it is trademarked in my name in Canada and Europe. And in the US, it's trademarked in the name of the company I founded. So it's actually trademarked. Even though everybody uses it as their own, but you know, what the heck, right? <laughs> you know. I don't know if you've ever invented an entire framework used by countless companies to foster innovation, but Bob explains that is not what he set out to do. Not at all. He was a young professor at McMaster University in Canada. This is back in the early 1980s. And his dean asked him to put together a speech for some alumni who were visiting. Bob had talked to a bunch of executives at different big companies about how they innovate, how they come up with new products. And he had some good and interesting stories. So I'm up there presenting my stuff and, and showing what team A did and what team from company B did, etc. And finally, after about the third or fourth scenario or story, one guy puts up his hand from the audience and says, enough, why don't you just pull it all together and put it into one game plan or playbook? And that's how you develop products. Just, just do what these guys did. You know? <laughs> and, that, and I went home 
and thought about that. And son of a gun, I, I had a sabbatical coming up. We were in Orlando. had a lot of time sitting around the pool, so I wrote it up as a playbook. Bob was a chemical engineer. He knew some research chemists at DuPont and at Exxon, so he sent off his plans to them. They loved it. They did an exercise. The whole thing worked great. Within a decade, Bob's stage gate process was so popular, so common in R&D departments everywhere, that people didn't even think of it as an idea some guy created, but as the essential way the world works, which means most people who use StageGate have no idea who Bob Cooper is. You know, once in a while, it'd be nice to take credit for something, but what the hell. People, people enjoy it. People find it's useful. That's, that's happy. That's enough for me. I, I, also, I also made, you know, to be a footnote, you don't have to make public. I also made a few bucks along the way out of it, so I can't be too, too greedy here. You know? <laughs> now, before we get into the actual StageGate process and how it turns rough ideas into successful new products, Bob does want to make one thing clear. Nearly all innovation is customer-centric innovation. There are countless examples of new products, new ideas that were designed in a lab or by a group of engineers without any input from customers. Every now and then, something amazing comes out of that process. I think of the laser invented at Bell Labs by two brothers-in-law who were just doing a fun, interesting project that nobody thought would have any future. Every now and then, those big breakthroughs get in the history books. Yeah, and that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty rare, let's be honest, Adam, right? Those kind of technological breakthroughs. That's not, that's not where most R&D in America is spent. To imagine the stage gate process, imagine two extremes. Extreme one, the hidden lab model. A group of scientists or engineers are all alone in a laboratory, ginning up the next big thing. They spend years and millions of dollars and only emerge when the thing is completely finished. Now, sure, every now and then, that model transforms the entire world. You get the laser or the telegraph or the latest in artificial intelligence. But far more often, that model ends up producing products that are expensive and that nobody wants. Crystal Pepsi, New Coke, the Iridium satellite phone that charged like up to $12 a minute and was no better than most cell phones. Now, that's extreme one, hiding in the lab. Extreme two is the will-do-whatever-you-want-us-to-do model where companies desperately chase every fad, every customer whim. They ask customers what they want, and they give it to them. That's how you end up with Blockbuster focusing on minor improvements to VHS tape rentals without seeing an entirely new world of streaming video. Both extremes have strengths. You do want engineers and scientists thinking about the future, a future customers can't see yet, and you want to be really tied into your customers. And that's what StageGate does. It makes sure you do the best of both. It does this by requiring an R&D process to grow deliberately, carefully, so that by the time a company is spending a lot of money and researchers are going deep into their labs, it's pretty clear where the customers are, that this whole process is worth it. It all starts with the first stage. That's the hunch stage, the quick gut sense and a little bit of information stage. You have an inkling that customers might want something. Maybe you know for sure that some want it, but you don't know how many want it. So you have to start a new project with a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, at the beginning, we say, you know, when you don't know very much, and let's face it, at the beginning of any major project, there's a lot of unknowns. 
uh, you know, unknowns about, in, in, in our case, about what the customer is looking for precisely, what the competition's up to, what the technical solution might be. So you, you go into these projects when you don't know much, you don't bet much. Again, like a game of five card stud poker, you got two cards there and it's an ace and a two. You don't have much information and, and, and you got a bet, so you bet a buck. And then you get another card. It's another ace. Hey, this is looking good. You know, more information and all the way through. But 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 as you get further and further along down down the, through the process, uh, obviously you have to make more commitments. But at that point, you know a lot more anyway. So there's less uncertainty, somewhat lower risk as you move along. So the first stage, stage zero, it's called, is idea generation. You have ideas, hunches, maybe a bunch of them. In StageGate, the, the, the idea goes into a screening, and it's a very, very high-level screen because you're making a decision based, based on hunch with little or no information other than your own experience and, and, and some available industry data. So the questions tend to be fairly high-level, like, does this project fit our strategy? Uh, does it have the potential for having competitive advantage? But you don't know that for sure. So they're, they're informed guesses. But you're not spending a lot of money, so it doesn't matter if you're that wrong, you know, 50% of the time. Then you have the first gate. Not all the ideas from stage zero get through that gate into stage one. Stage one is where you start fleshing the idea out a bit. You gather more data. Maybe you create a quick mock-up of the new product and show it to some customers to see if they like it. You spend time researching the market, getting some more real data. And so in about six weeks, eight weeks, you're back with that new data. And now you make a somewhat uh, tougher decision to commit more money. And that would be gate two. And, and there's where you might have some numbers. You know, roughly speaking, we think the market is about you know, $100 million. You know, if we're successful, we might pick up anywhere from 2 to 5%. At each stage, you're going deeper. You're gathering more information. You're testing. Will this new thing work? Will people buy it? I find when talking to Bob, he makes it seem so common sense, so obvious. Yeah, you make small bets when you don't know much, and then bigger bets when you feel more confident. But he points out that the reason the stage gate process became so revolutionary is that much innovation used to happen, and still does, let's be honest, far away from customers, from new information. It's that old extreme one. A group would go into an R&D lab, spend a ton of money, and the first time customers really saw the product was after it had been fully developed, all the money spent. With StageGate, you're testing with real customers at every stage. You do this testing with customers all the way through, and, and also testing technically, that it actually can be made. A customer is the center, in theory, okay? Now, a lot of people drop the ball here, because that's hard work, huh? That's the key. There's always a temptation to forget the customer. You're in a lab or a baking kitchen or whatever, coming up with some new idea. It can take so much work to get your product just right. And it's such a bummer when you put it in front of a bunch of potential customers and they say, nah, I don't want it. But, Bob will point out, it's way less of a bummer if you have been checking in on your customers throughout, making sure that you are not committing a whole other level of funding and research time if you haven't made sure that customers are probably going to want to buy whatever it is you're making. Bob says one key is to create actual tangible versions of whatever you're creating. 
These don't have to be fancy or final. They can just be quickly put together packaging or a super basic version of a product. The point is that for new things, most people don't know if they want them until they have a chance to actually see whatever it is. Just asking someone in the abstract, do you want pizza flour? Do you want gluten-free cupcakes? That's not as helpful as putting a bunch of products on a shelf, including the new ones, and seeing which ones the real customers reach for. Now, Bob is talking about R&D at big companies, companies with lots of engineers and, more to the point, lots of customers who they can talk to, they can ask questions. How does customer-centric innovation work when you're a brand new entrepreneur and you don't have any customers? Uh, for me, it started, this was back in 2010, we got married and uh, pizza making at home became a thing for me. So I started to learn, learn on that journey of trying to make better pizza at home. That's Christian Tapaninaho. He's Finnish, but lives in Scotland. He was making pizzas at home in the oven and one of the things that I discovered very early on on that journey was that to make great pizza, you need higher temperature than your standard domestic oven can do. So in Fahrenheit, your domestic oven can do maybe 450 uh, degrees for maybe 500 if you're a bit lucky um, on a warm day. This is one of my big lessons as I learned to make pizza. You just can't get a great pie, that combination of crispy and chewy with what they call leopard spotting, those blotches of almost burnt crust alongside the less dark crust, unless you have an oven that can get to 800, 900, even 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Christian wanted to buy an oven that would work for him, that would get up to those super high temperatures, but he quickly found out that there is no such thing, at least not a thing he could afford and that was practical for him with a tiny little backyard. The only at-home pizza oven options at the time were these massive, really expensive ovens that rich people could afford. They cost like 10 grand or more, and they are huge and immovable. They take up practically his whole backyard. So Christian decided, what if we could make an oven that can get those super high temperatures but isn't massive and isn't crazy expensive. Now, you might have looked at Christian at the time and thought, what are you talking about? You have no business even thinking about this. Christian had absolutely no experience making appliances or manufacturing anything of any kind. He had been a photographer, and then he and his wife, Darina Garland, ran a small business. We worked in education. We didn't have any money. So they had no money, no experience. No research, no data about whether a whole lot of people are like Christian and also want low-cost, movable, small pizza ovens. The one thing they had at first, truly the only thing they had, was a realization that they would be customers of this new product that didn't yet exist. We really wanted this and couldn't believe it didn't exist. So Christian was all excited. Then Darina got excited about the idea. What if we could do it? What if we could pull it off? What if we could make an oven that got really hot, wasn't too big, and wasn't insanely expensive? If you had a price point of $250, like, okay, I probably will use it. Now, this all happened 10 years ago. If Christian and Darina had this idea 20 years ago, say, or 30 years ago, 
they'd pretty much be out of luck. There was almost no way to go from some vague idea about a new product to the kind of customer research and startup costs needed to manufacture such a thing unless you had a lot of money and a lot of investors, and they didn't have either. But they were lucky. They were having this idea in 2012, and there was this new company called Kickstarter that was designed exactly for this purpose. People with a new idea, but no capital, no existing customers, could announce their idea to the world and solve the customer research and the funding problem all in one go. If there were people out there who wanted the thing, they'd pay for it up front, and that would fund the making of the thing. And if it turned out not enough people did want the thing, okay, no problem. They just wouldn't make it. They wouldn't go through those expenses. But this was like genuinely just that really tiny proof of concept. Uh, We were only aiming for for seven thousand pounds. It was yeah, seven and a half. It was uh, it was really just to test the idea and see if there's other people out there and get. I I think the intention was to make fifty of these into the world and just get it off the ground. What was great about that that after those thirty day campaign, we got those like first hundred ovens, and then we got so much press and interest and, and sales after the fact. Like they just kept coming in. People's hearts and minds were set on fire by, the, you know, this concept of great pizza at home. So it was very organic. They wanted to raise seventy five hundred pounds. That's about ten thousand dollars. They raised more than twice that number, seventeen thousand pounds, around twenty five grand. And that was super exciting for them. But let's be honest, those numbers are really modest. It's just not a lot of money in the world of appliance manufacturing. A bigger company, pretty much any existing company at all, would not even bother looking into a product that only made twenty five thousand dollars. But they were psyched. They got that first sale of 100 ovens at 250 bucks a piece. They knew they had at least some customers. They were like, okay, so the customer's probably a bit like Christian. They're like early 30s, um, have a small backyard, kind of a bit techie. That felt good. There are a lot of men in their early 30s who have a small backyard and are a bit techie. That was a narrow target customer, but it was big enough to justify spending more time focused on this new business. But pretty soon they realized that a lot more people wanted to make pizza at home. It's not just 30-year-old techies. No, it's baby boomers who are in caravanning and they're, or it's, you know, uh, like in Korea, it was really big for a while. And you're like, okay, that's because caravanning is really big in Korea. So we were kind of all over the place because ultimately everyone loves pizza. I should mention now, 10 years later, their company, Uni, is a massive success. Those early experiments led to bigger experiments. Another wildly successful Kickstarter campaign brought in a million dollars. Uni now has hundreds of employees in Scotland, the U.S., China. They completely dominate the at-home pizza oven market. I myself have two Uni ovens, the gas-fired Coda and the wood and coal-fired Karu. They are friggin' awesome. Go get one. My family used to have a weekly pizza night where we'd order pizza from a local place. It was pretty good. It would cost about $80 a week. Now we make the pizza ourselves. Sometimes have a bunch of friends over. They can make their own pizza. It's way more fun. It's more delicious. At least I think it is. Ash is not yet convinced. And it turns pizza night into this really fun event that costs a lot less money. You actually cover the cost of the oven in a few weeks. 
But the whole point of this episode is not to hawk pizza ovens. I promise you, I do not get a commission if you buy one. It was to talk about how paying careful attention to what customers or potential customers want is the single best way to create new products. Uni's business, for example, is now to fully serve the pizza-making community. They sell all the utensils you'd need, all the peels, those big trays that you flick the pizza into the oven with. They sell a special table to hold your pizza oven because they're kind of awkwardly sized. They sell the very best flour and tomatoes, and they'll sell you pre-made dough. They are constantly learning new things about what pizza-making customers want, and then they're giving it to them. I also want to point out that without even knowing what it was, Darina and Christian used essentially the stage gate process. Christian started with a hunch. Hey, I want this thing. Maybe it exists already. He did that research. No, it doesn't exist. So he thought, huh, I bet other people might want it. Then his first gate was Darina. He had to convince his wife, hey, should we spend some time on this? And she thought, yeah, I, I buy it. Let's, let's at least try. Then the next gate is the Kickstarter. They hadn't spent a huge amount of time or effort, about 30 days. And if nobody had wanted it, that was fine. They hadn't spent a fortune. They hadn't devoted so much time. It wasn't that big a deal. But that first Kickstarter led them to the second one. And that then felt like, okay, we've made over a million dollars. People really want these things. Let's start a company. Today, they have a 40-person research and development team constantly exploring new models of oven, new products to delight the at-home pizza baker. They just hired one of their biggest fans, the person who created the Facebook community celebrating Uni Ovens, to become their contact point with their consumers. So they're really deeply engaged with the at-home pizza-making consumer. So here's my question for you. What hunch do you have? How would you... Test your hunch out. See if it's worth doing a little bit more to develop. What is your stage gate process? Well, who is your customer and what do they want? Well, Adam, I'm ready for some pizza. So, Adam, you just asked our listeners if they had a hunch and how they would test it out. Well, it turns out that producer correspondent Jane Marie has a hunch about a new business that she's thinking about starting. And next week, we're on the ground floor as she starts testing her idea. Meet the Customer is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360. Salesforce unites all of your teams, marketing, sales, service, commerce, and IT around a single shared view of your customer on one integrated platform. And the result, your employees have all the information they need to do their best work and wow your customers at every opportunity. So to learn more about what Salesforce Customer 360 can do for your business, visit salesforce.com slash 360. Meet the Customer is a production of Salesforce Studios, hosted by Adam Davidson and Jane Marie, produced by Little Everywhere, additional production from Rachel Levin and Courtney Eltinge of Salesforce Studios. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for listening.